Okay, good evening, gentlemen. Thank you all for joining us. Greetings to you guys online. We're going to jump back into Chapter 7. Of course, we're dawdling around marriage because there's so much for us to learn because so much has gotten lost. And uh, we'll we'll pick up and pace here a little bit, I think, tonight um, since we've we've spent significant time on the most important parts. Let's uh, open with prayer, and then we'll jump back in. Dear Heavenly Father, we pray your grace and mercy upon us that we might rightly understand your word and apply it to ourselves and be blessed in that word. We pray for all the marriages of our congregation, that you would bless them, and especially that even in trial and affliction and difficulty, the love that you have for your church would be reflected microcosmically in our marriages. We pray that you would bless them and sustain them where marriages have been injured. We pray that you would grant forgiveness, recovery, and mutual love. We pray that you would strengthen the men gathered here together as uh, you have called them to various vocations, various stations of life, and as they find themselves in different places in their own uh, seasons of life, that you would grant them wisdom to guide and bless uh, those others whom you have put under their care and under their charge. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we talked about at the end of last week, the Lutheran fathers, along with other church fathers, tracing all the way back, view adultery as such a manifest issue that it even warrants the death penalty. That's what Luther advocates for. It's rather astonishing to us. But in that in that context, then you see how, how in chapter 7, where if a wife were to refuse her duty to her husband or a husband were to refuse his duty to the wife, that's just the other side of the coin. Both break the marriage. Adultery is an, a, a deed, a commission that breaks the marriage, whereas stubborn refusal to grant the other their conjugal duty to uh, defraud the other is a sin of omission and ultimately breaks the marriage as a form of abandonment. To clarify, this is a stubborn, persistent kind of behavior. This isn't, uh, not tonight. Okay, that's it. Death penalty. It's not, not, I hope, I hope that's clear. I I hope we don't need a chapter and verse for that. Uh, So having looked at those, let's uh, run pretty quickly through the first verses of chapter seven then. Now, concerning the matters about which you wrote, so again, the Corinthians have written to Paul, and they have made this statement. You can see it in quotations, at least in your ESV, probably other translations as well. So he's quoting them. It is good for a man uh, not to touch or fasten to a woman. But because of sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her, and I'm going to say the husband should fulfill his duty to his wife is a better translation. And likewise, the wife to her husband. 
For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. And just very briefly, Chrysostom teaches on this point that in in all the other scriptures, but particularly the Pauline scriptures, you see a very clear hierarchy delineated within the family. Not so here when it comes to the sexual duty. This is the one place where you see this kind of equality, that the wife has equal claim to the body of the husband as the husband has to the body of the wife. Then at five, do not uh, deprive, which again is apostereta, defraud. Do not defraud one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time. And you can see that with that modifying clause there, deprive is a fine rendering of that. That you may devote yourselves to prayer. So an example of this, and maybe maybe a very difficult example, would be to practice uh, abstinence within a marriage for, say, the season of Lent. You both agree to this. You're supporting each other in this. And that puts you um, in such a way that you can devote yourselves especially to prayer. Some other uh, situation obviously could apply, but that would be one such example, at least in our context. After the semicolon, but then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So it is just simply part of our experience in the fallen world that uh, the vast majority of men and women lack self-control in this area. And Paul's going to, that's the perfect pivot for Paul into the next section. But what you should see here, as Paul very clearly points out, is that the sexual union between husband and wife is something that Satan wants to attack Because if he can attack that, he can break that union, and what will manifest are all kinds of different and other sins. So it is spiritual warfare. Very frequently, we don't think of spiritual warfare, but spiritual warfare, and I I do really believe that this is true. This is deeply written into the Lutheran tradition. The The home is the most important place. The family is the unit of creation. So I know we just got done celebrating the Reformation, got the big hammering of the nails into the church door. God will use events like that as he sees fit. But the front lines of the spiritual war in every single generation takes place in the home and in the family. And there's really two lochi for that. And this is the most important places in the universe. And that's the table and the bed. So the table is obvious because that's the, that's the fellowship. That's the receiving from the gifts of the Lord. That's the fellowship. And I, and I've mentioned this before. I'll, I'll mention it again. Um, husbands, that's, that's your table. That's your domain. That the analogy to that is when the father invites us to his house every Sunday and there has a discourse prepared for us, his word and the sermon and has a meal prepared for us the sacrifice of his son, the blessed Eucharist. So by way of parallel, we as fathers and the head of the household 
should not only ha- see to it that we've provided the means for a meal. There's such a beautiful poetry there too. And I, again, I'm just speaking in generalities here, so don't take offense, but as a general reality, the husband brings home the raw materials, that provision, and the wife transforms those raw materials from raw materials into an actual meal. You can make a distinction between mere food and a meal and a meal is actually something wonderfully, beautifully uh, medicinal. It's one of the most overlooked things. One of the one of the greatest gifts that, that women um, can give unto their families and is to is to prepare meals because that's a time where everyone comes together as a family and relaxes and is refreshed and is encouraged. So the husband provides that meal, but then the husband should also just like microcosmic microcosm of the divine service the husband should also provide the, or the father should also provide the discourse now it's fine if everybody wants to get together and jibber jabber about whatever nonsense that's fine but you're the one that wants to keep you want to keep an eye on that and make sure it's going the right way you want to make sure it's building it's supportive it's positive if if there's a grousing session that's fine but you're the one that wants to draw the boundaries and say all right you know what we're moving on Well, one thing I'm thankful for in this circumstance is this. Let's let that be enough for tonight. And then also to provide uh, the the substance. Now, it doesn't, every so often, I I mean, that can be a Bible story, and that's great. If you find that hard, don't do that. Do something else. Um, we've We've got young kids. Sometimes they're tired. And, of course, I'm always ready to go with the Bible story. They're not always ready to hear it. That's fine. I get it. Um, So I just... One thing that I do, and you can take it or leave it entirely, is I've got a little book of kids' riddles. And so we'll get that going. It's a brain teaser, and we laugh, and we joke, and we mess around, and, you know, that kind of thing. So uh, that, that's something that was just lost on me uh, for, for many years as a, as a father, that, that responsibility and that duty to control the discourse at the table and make sure that that's a, a building wonderful uh, experience as, as much as it can be. Pastor, yes, sir. Please do. Please. So, it's fair to say that the father's uh, desired outcome there is to use that time well to have some meaningful discussion. I mean, I'm not saying serious all the time. It's not necessarily just about whatever's top of mind for the father, right? Mm-hmm. But it should be we have that would kind of like a teacher in a classroom would say, "I have these students here, and my role at this time is to do." equip them with something. Absolutely. And it turns catechesis from this formal thing to this thing where your children just learn um, that this is part of life. It's part of it's how you see the world. It's how you interpret reality. Uh, and yeah, so it doesn't even have to be anything necessarily prepared, but it is It is time for catechesis. Um, more than anything, it's just, it's it's an opportunity for you to realize that this is your table. This is your forum. And, it, you know, again, your mileage may vary. We try to do that in our household right now in the mornings. We couldn't always do that. When we had a little baby, it just didn't work, you know. So um, you got to be flexible with these things. Lunch, we're never together. And then uh, dinners, as many as possible, we try to eat those together. And we try to have some sort of, and even if it's negative, that's fine. But <clears throat> how do we interpret that? So you want to take ownership. You want to take responsibility. You're the, you're the host. Of, at your table, you're the you're the Lord of your domain. Uh, you're the high priest in the royal priesthood that is your baptized family, 
And if you take that, uh, you can take that seriously and um, it'll, it'll bear great fruit for everyone involved. So just keep the, keep those things in mind um, can be very helpful. Now that's the table, the bed, and that's where I launched off on the beds, the other place. We just don't think about it. And I know men and women don't think about it. We need to become conscious of this, that the second most important place in the house and the second most important place in the, in the cosmos is the bedroom, because that's the union between your, between husband and wife. And even if that's, look, I understand there's different, um, libidos as we say okay but that can so it doesn't need to necessarily be sexual activity but it but the bed needs to be um undefiled sexually but how about just period how about if the bed is a place where you speak sweetly with one another if you can pray in any way together and if not you work toward that even something so simple as hey would you pray the lord's prayer with me tonight Okay. That you try to use the bed as not the place where you bring up, you know, hey, the pork roast was burnt. Uh, or, you know, I noticed some extra crumbs under the table. Uh, try to, try to, try to be the host of the bed and the host of that intimacy and pre- provide your wife a sanctuary in the same way that Christ provides his bride, the church, a literal sanctuary and a place where Again, there's reconciliation and friendship and growth. So just some ways to look at this that, again, spring right from the text of Scripture. And, and a verse like this provides ample opportunity to, to think about that because Satan will love to attack your dining room table and he'll love to attack your bed. Love to attack the intimacy between husband and wife and he'll love to attack the intimacy of the family gathered at table. And once you realize this, of course, everybody who's, who's tried to do family devotions realize, I mean, I joke and some people look at me like I've got worms crawling out of my ears. But if you've tried this for any length of time, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It's like the gates of hell open up underneath and demons are swarming all around with this distraction and that distraction and this conflict and that fight. And um, to be aware of that as a husband, though, also helps you not get frustrated with your family when they're not going along with it. And to just realize, hey, there's spiritual combat going on here. Just there's spiritual combat um, in the bedroom going on here. You want to be aware of that, even if your wife and children aren't, and recognize who the true enemies are and do your best to spite them. Do your best to foil their attempts. So this is obviously, I mean, how do you rebuild a how do you rebuild a society? How do you build up a church? How do you make things better in the next generation? It, more often than not, these things happen at the bed and at the board, not at the church door nailing theses into uh, into the wood. I mean, every so often, God blesses an act like that, and God be praised. But that's not we can't choose that as our calling. What God does give us as our calling is, are these domains of which I've been speaking. Let me pause there, see if you have any reflections, or maybe uh, you men with much more experience, or you grandfathers who have uh, seen this with your children, feel free. I'm, you know, kind of a rookie at all of this myself in terms of just raw experience. Yes, sir. And direct question, I know. But as you know, in the Old Testament, men have multiple wives. Yes. Right. What was your shift of 
Well, there, yeah, that's a good question. So the question for you, those of you online is that, you know, in the Old Testament, you see polygamy in certain instances, and then you see a gradual kind of ending of that. So I know this is hard for us to wrap our minds around because we're in such a sexualized culture, but polygamy as practiced many times in the Old Testament scriptures is a matter of um, beneficence and a matter of becoming a benefactor. So we've we've lost entire sight of this. I'll try to state it briefly. But when you realize the teaching from Genesis through Revelation is that the daughters have their fathers as heads until there's a wedding. Then the daughter is handed off and she's under the headship of another. Okay, that, that frame is essential, okay? Now, what happens in that frame where you have women who are widowed or who are undesirable but would be married, what happens to those women? And very frequently, again, I know it's hard for us to wrap our minds around, but people in the Old Testament would actually look at it not so much as, oh, I get to have sex with someone else, but I get to take responsibility and care for that person. I get to bless this woman who wants nothing more on earth than to be part of a family and have children, and she otherwise wouldn't have that opportunity. I'm going to take that burden and that responsibility, and inevitably that conflict between the wives and between their children I'm going to take that on altruistically. So it's a different view. Now, obviously, God's plan from the very start is uh, one woman, one man. He not only permits, but commands polygamy under certain circumstances in the Old Testament. To oversimplify quite a bit, as Christ comes, we see a narrowing down and we see Christ himself drawing us back to how it was in the beginning and how it really always is meant to be, one man, one woman. And so for the period of the church, uh, polygamy has not been widely practiced and has utterly been frowned upon. In fact, um, there's much debate over when polygamous pagans become Christians, what do you do with the wives? Do you honor that marriage? Some church fathers said yes. Or do you say the first one's the real one, the rest, sorry, you're out of luck. So, some church fathers said that. But one thing is certain that when Christ comes and says, one woman, one man, and calls us back to Genesis and what God created there, then that sets the tone for the rest of Christianity. And so that by and large disappears and, of course, is, is, not, is not practiced and shouldn't be practiced. Does that, does that give? That's about the best I can do off the cuff. Yes, sir. Let's see if I can say this correctly. Uh, you know, we live in a world of uh, performance and athleticism. And, you know, in the bedroom, sometimes there's criticism of the abilities and uh, actually body image, even. Uh, you know, uh, you kind of probably know what I'm talking about. Once criticism from one partner to the other occurs, it seems that's that's a big foothold for Satan mm -hmm. uh, to operate. I, I know the Bible says we're we're made we're one flesh, and so we're to look on our our spouse as 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 ourselves. Mm -hmm. And uh, but if you could just comment on how to handle that, if uh, uh, you know, that comes into a, uh, into a kind of, uh, 
Yeah, it's a good question. So just for you guys online, the question was, um, sometimes between husband and wife, there can be criticism in regards to sexual performance in the bedroom. Yeah. Even or appearance. Or bodily appearance. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like, like I say to my wife, I'm in shape. She says, well, pear is a shape. <laughs> uh, just teasing. Just teasing. But yeah, so, so this is good. Now, now some of this is the, the, is the fruit of fornication and the fruit of pornography and the fruit of an over-sexualized culture where it's like, where on earth did we get these kinds of expectations that are completely unrealistic? Again, in God's vision, there's virginity until marriage, and the two, you, you two are the only ones you know. And so there is no comparison and there is no criticism. Um, and that's God's, I mean, that's the blessing of God's plan and the blessing, blessing of following that path. Uh, one of the most pernicious things about pornography is it just betrays all of sex, it betrays all of sexuality in, in completely, uh, satanic and, uh, terrible ways. And so that, that can be very damaging to both man and woman ahead of time. Um, one of the things then where it's, so I've, I've talked about maybe the sinful side of that. The other side is, you know, maybe body imaging problems and getting out of shape and all of that. Well, as, as men, I think we can take that criticism if we receive it constructively to one degree or another. Maybe it is time to get on a diet, hit the gym a little, and that can be a blessing. That can be a blessing to both of you. So that's, it's worth, it's worth considering that criticism that doesn't come from a, a sinful basis per se. But the other side of it is this. Um, we need to desexify the knowing of husband and wife. And what I mean by that is, is a return to this biblical idea of duty. The world's like, you know, all about how great, how great was your orgasm? Which of course puts all your focus on you and all your focus on your experience. And it's where it's where even within marriage, you can have fornication happening. Even within marriage, even within the sexual union, you can have two people who are completely disconnected and are just using each other for their own gratification. That's a kind of perversion of the sexual experience, isn't it? So that when you start to recognize those kinds of things, like, you know, it's, pre it's probably pretty one-sided. It's If you become aware of that, you need to make sure that you try to change that culture. Don't objectify your wife. Don't use her as an object. Don't uh, don't let that culture exist in the bedroom. Um, aside from that, don't take it so personally. That's the kind of the that's kind of the final point. Is what I mean by desexifying the act of knowing one's spouse is realize it's a duty. It doesn't matter what you look like, what she looks like. It's it's a duty. It's a union. And there is something that happens there too, where, you know, I, and I think, I think women maybe in particular don't quite realize this. Men love their wives and then give them children and their bodies change. That's just a reality. And it's part of why we take a marital vow because your, what you do and the children they bear is going to change their bodies. And it's going to make them less desirable to another spouse. So you had better bind yourself to them, whether they become out of shape or overweight or whatever else. You've bound yourself to that person. And that's the trade-off. The trade is you're going to give me children and I'm still going to love you once you've produced those children. And maybe your body is inevitably changed. 
So one of the things that I think women don't quite realize is very common in the male psychology is that you remember somehow in your mind, it is implanted what your wife, uh, how beautiful she is and has always been. And even though she sees herself maybe as utterly changed and unattractive, you don't. That's the reality. You don't. It doesn't matter if she's, you know, 80 years old or it doesn't matter if she's uh, gained 100 pounds. You, you see the same beautiful person that you love. You see your wife and you know that she is the way she is because life has been the way it's been. And you, you don't begrudge her that. I, I think that's really important to reaffirm our wives in that and to to verbally say that and show that in our actions as well. Um and it is, it's just something for women to become aware of that while they may be self-conscious, the husband isn't thinking about that, isn't thinking about what is like, how his wife has changed. So yeah, just some thoughts there, Barry. I don't, fair enough. Yeah. Yeah. Of course, if anybody else has anything to add in, I know it's a sensitive subject. If I wasn't, if I wasn't the pastor sitting here, I probably wouldn't be saying anything. <laughs> Okay, anything else we want to touch on? So jumping back into the text then, uh, just this realization that Satan is very, very interested in what goes on in the bedroom and how those things are navigated. You can see that um, here after the semicolon again in verse 5, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. All right, 6. Now as a concession not a command, I say this. So he wants to be clear that he's not setting up a kind of rule or precedent here. I wish that all were as I myself am. Well, Paul is able to be celibate. There's some indication that Paul was married before and that he's a widower, but at any rate, he's received this gift of celibacy. And we really should view the gift of celibacy as a preferable gift, as as Paul's going to say in many ways, but it is an exceedingly rare gift. True, true celibacy. I mean, it's really a lack of sexual desire. It's sexual desire so mild and so fleeting that it's very easy to set aside. Um, that's a rare kind of a gift. But at any rate, Paul says, I'm sorry, please. I was just going to quote a little bit from this Luther sermon. Please do. So talking about those that have a sexual uh, gift. He says, uh, what they would say is, I could marry if I wish, I'm capable of it, but it does not attract me. I would rather be a gospel he get spiritual children, end quote. Such persons are rare, not one in a thousand, for they are a special miracle of God. No one should venture on such a life unless he be especially called by God, like Jeremiah, or unless he finds God's grace to be so powerful within him that the divine injunction, be fruitful and multiply, has no place in him. So it's, it's... So he already said it... Yeah, he already said it better than I could. Thank you. I appreciate that. Were they able to hear this online? Yes. Okay, very good. Thank you. Yeah, so well said. I agree wholeheartedly with that sentiment. And I think that that's exactly what St. Paul's getting after here. From my personal view, it's a blessed thing because you don't have to go through pain and suffering <laughs> right, right. Well, and it is, um, so where you've been given the gift as a Christian of celibacy, that's not like, oh, look at all the extra income, time to travel the world. That's never quite the view. The view is exactly as as Luther expressed. Okay, so then use your celibacy to uh, 
to marry yourself to the church, so to speak, okay, and to and to get busy for the kingdom of God. Whereas you would be serving uh, an earthly family now, serve the heavenly family. Yeah. So so celibacy isn't a call to idleness. It's just a recognition that my vocation is going to have a very different shape. Okay, so again, uh, now as a concession, not a command, I say this, I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and widows, I say that it is good for them to remain as I am. Uh, Singles just interposed in there. It's obviously true. So again, now you've got two persons. You've got unmarried and widows. So if they can remain celibate, then then they can. And of course, some some widows, if you're in older age, maybe you couldn't remain celibate before. So the right thing was to be married. And then that marriage has dissolved due to the death of husband or wife. And then you realize that you have a continence you didn't have before. You can actually make that celibacy work. So that would those would be examples for widows. Verse 9. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Yeah, and of course, one of the great systemic problems we have right now is the world's telling our youth to get married in their 30s, and that's just a disaster. That's just, like, doesn't work. And we all we all uh, clutch our pearls and gasp when someone says, um, "Have them get married in their teens, um, and and have the marriage be nearly arranged between parents." <gasps> How unromantic! How contrary to Disney and everything it's taught me. Uh, yeah, except you've got two things: you've got the Word of God, and you've got biology. That is, you've got both books of God, uh, the natural revelation and the specific revelation. Um, pointing to the reality that when sexual maturity comes along uh, and and those uh, hormones hit, you've got a ticking clock before fornication is going to happen. It's just a reality. Um, now it doesn't. It's not an excuse. It's not an excuse. It's not permission. Keep yourself. Uh, keep yourself uh, pure. The marriage bed would be undefiled. You, you young men. Um, don't use the setup as an excuse, but for those of us who have some control and need to have some awareness of how the system is working, we need to realize that it's set up to cause our young people to fail. It's by design. No, I don't think it's, um, you know, Biden sitting there in his black emperor chair, figuring all this out because there are uh, super intelligences far greater than any rulers on earth who have this figured out and who are manipulating everything like puppet masters to set it up to be a spiritual meat grinder for people. That's their goal. Sorry, Please do. Change and may not all be directly applicable, but Luther's words on this are quote, a young man should marry at the age of 20 at the latest, a young woman at 15 to 18. That's right. when they're still in good health and best suited for marriage. Let God worry about how they and their children are to be fed. God makes children, he will surely also feed them. That's great. Exactly. We need a lot less financial planning and a lot more faith. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. 
Yeah, and and blessed are the young men and young women who realize this. Blessed are the parents who uh, who realize this and direct their young ones. Absolutely. Okay. Verse 10. To the married I give this charge, and then parenthetically, not I but the Lord. There are a few places where Paul claims to have direct revelation from the Lord himself. And you remember in Acts, he encounters the Lord when the Lord catechizes Paul. Um, in fact, in Acts chapter 20, you've got red letters that pop up where it is explicitly said, I think by Paul again, um, as the Lord Jesus said, it is better to give than to receive. And it's in red letters. It's not That line isn't in any of the Gospels. So it's a direct revelation from the Lord uh, to St. Paul. And I would I would likewise put this in a similar category where he says, not I, but the Lord. He's saying, like, I heard this directly. Your other alternative exegetically is he's got a specific Old Testament scripture in mind that he can direct you to, even though he doesn't, as far as I can tell. So to the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not uh, separate is fine. It's cut off. Baristhenai should not cut off from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. Yeah, so if you look at the footnote, this will give you an example. So the the idea of this being based on Scripture, that's how the, as opposed to a direct revelation from the Lord, that's how the editors of the study Bible take it. Fine, I don't care. Um, God's revealed instruction based on Scripture. And then they also have some other interesting details. Under Jewish law, only the husband had the right to divorce. You know, you can think of that because the it just... It's not like a misogynistic system. It's a. It's like, what is she supposed to do? Return to her father? Because that's the only biblical alternative, is if a woman were to divorce, she returns to her father. Well, that's not possible. And if you were a godly father, would you ever take your daughter back? I wouldn't. You made a vow. You two have become one flesh. That's your household. You're not under my household, nor are you wel- welcome back. <laughs> Make it work. That's that's a proper understanding of the order of creation, and it's what and it's how godly fathers should look at marriage. When you give your daughter's hand in marriage, you are giving her hand. You're not allowed to take that back. You're not allowed to subvert that. Now, if he somehow divorces her in an ungodly, unjust way, and then she's hanging out, yeah, and she comes back under your headship. That's the biblical way of looking at it. Okay, so then, yeah, husbands then logically are the ones that divorce their wives in this system. Just continuing a little more with the study note, there's other thought-provoking things, I think. Paul's counsel affirms equality in marriage, excluding divorce from the husband as from the wife. Paul's counsel against divorce is like that found in the Dead Sea Scrolls and in some rabbinic literature, so certainly not in a vacuum. So if if there were to be divorce, the, the you know, and this is this is something that um, I, I don't want to go too into too depth because I don't think it's that interesting, but it is a mess, and it's a mess that maybe you can only appreciate uh, 
as a pastor, Eastern Orthodoxy, Roman Catholicism, Lutheranism, the whole of the Reformed evangelical spectrum, nobody knows what to do with divorcees. And all this, all the options are bad. All the options are bad. You've got everything from Rome saying, okay, you can never get married again. And if you're divorced, you can't have communion ever again. Oh, great. Sounds real reasonable. But then you've got the other side of the spectrum, which is like, oh, you got a divorce? Oh, okay. See you at communion on Sunday. Both of those are disastrous, disastrous, corporately disastrous for the body of Christ, personally disastrous for the the people who are involved. There is no good answer. This is one of the reasons, and again, it might might take you a bit to, to get there yourself, but it's one of the reasons why so many of the church fathers viewed um, the death sentence for adultery, because the what are you supposed to do otherwise? And where you don't have a, a society set up like we do here in America, very frequently, um, it's just disastrous for both parties, even more so now. I mean, we, even more so than it is now. What we have now, you've got all these quote-unquote safety nets because you've got the government that will sweep in and divide things up and take all the guy's money and give it to the girl. <laughs> just complete injustice. Completely dis disincentivizes young guys to get married. Why on earth would you get married as a young guy? The government completely disincentivizes it. The reason why you would is because you have faith in God and because that's the right thing to do. And you live for God, not for what's incentivized by the world. Yeah, but it's a real mess and a real disaster. So that's a look at how Paul deals with it. I mean, it might strike us as draconian. It might strike us as backward or, or too hard or not evangelical enough or something like that. But I would suggest to you that all of our critiques are precisely what's led to what we have. It's a mess. So to the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate or cut herself off from her husband. If she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. In our pastorals written by Walther and others, you have treatments of like how all this works and all the myriad of circumstances that might arise. Okay, um, anything we want to discuss there? I mean, we can easily get lost in the weeds. Paul doesn't say nearly as much as we want him to say. There are many different circumstances here, obviously. Um, what happens, for example, if uh, if there's a divorce, but then there's no way to be reconciled to the husband, or if the in this case, or if the husband's moved on, married someone else, now what, and all of this stuff. And so it just really creates a mess for everybody. Does he go into it? Good, good. Yeah. So if you're really interested in this topic, pick up a copy of the sermon, um, and you can you can get some more detail there. Okay. So at twelve to the rest, I say, I not the Lord. Now I think again, it doesn't matter how you cut it. In the first one where he says, not I, but the Lord, you either believe that's a direct revelation from Jesus to Paul, or you believe he's got a scripture reference in mind. Okay, those are pretty much your two alternatives. 
what's going on here in 12 is not that Paul's saying, well, this is just my personal opinion, take her to leave it. What he's saying is, I don't have this either direct revelation from the Lord, or I don't have a specific verse in mind for what I'm going to say next, but Paul is going to rely on his apostolic authority. So this is every bit as binding, this is every bit as biblical, scriptural as anything else. And you're going to see Paul, even at other places in this epistle, make similar kinds of statements, but refer to his apostolic authority. So again, I just think we should take this the way the church has always taken this. As, this is part of Scripture. He doesn't say, okay, it was Scripture up to this point, but time out. Not Scripture anymore. Uh, I'll tell you when I resume the Scripture stuff. So that's, I think, the best take on this section. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever. So now here's a different uh, circumstance. And what's happening again in the first century is not that an unbeliever and a believer were getting married. That would be precluded by what Paul has already said. What fellowship has light with darkness? It is really forbidden and continues to be to this day for pastors to marry a believer and an unbeliever together. But what's happening in the ancient world, of course, you got two unbelievers married, and then one of them converts. Now what? And that's really the section, that that's what this section is discussing here, is that uh, unique circumstance, which does happen from time to time, even today. So, to the rest I say, I not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever, and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy. Now, this doesn't mean saved, doesn't mean granted salvation, but it means holy and holy for the sake of the offspring, as you'll see. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. So the idea would be, if I'm holy, if I'm a saint of God, and I'm continuing in a one-flesh union with my spouse who is not holy, am I thus becoming defiled? Is everything becoming defiled? It's kind of an ancient way of thinking, but and, and it's a religious way of thinking, to be sure. But you've got holiness and unholiness. And if you bring those two together, which wins out? And Paul's saying here, the holiness of the believer wins out. So you don't have to worry that the, that the marital union, the sexual union is somehow unclean in the eyes of God nor the offspring that would come, that he would view them as unclean, as some sort of like spiritual bastards or something like that. Make make sense somewhat? I know these are odd categories for us, Old Testament categories by and large, even though they show up here in the New. Okay, so once more at 14, for the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband, otherwise your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. And again, we're not talking about salvation here. It's talking about what is holy and what is defiled, what belongs to God and what belongs to Satan. And he's saying, even if you, a believer, have an unbelieving, when you have a one flesh union, your holiness prevails and prevails unto the conception of your offspring. Not talking about salvation again. 15, but if the unbelieving partner separates, 
Let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. Or how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? As you can tell then from the context and from the sentiment, it's like um, if they depart, you let them depart. You don't beg and plead and do everything you can to win them back because you think you're going to save them. You don't know if you're going to save them. Maybe you will, maybe you won't. If they depart from you, you're not enslaved to them. You're free in the Lord from that union, and you're free to marry a Christian in that case. <clears throat> okay, anything we want to touch on there? I know it's a pretty specific set of circumstances. So for the sake of it, I know it's a bit tangential, but... Marriages between believers and unbelievers are forbidden, obviously, but all of our all of our pastorals in the Lutheran tradition are very much against the intermarrying of different denominations, because inevitably it splits. And usually the acid test is, are we going to baptize the baby or not? But Or where are we going to go on Sunday morning? And so that becomes that becomes a, a unique challenge and a cross to bear that again is is advised against. Sometimes young people have a scarcity mindset, like, well, this is the only person, so I've got to make this work. And it's like, whoa, that is a narrow view. And you need to understand that if you're going to enter into that union ill-advisedly, you're setting yourself up for a life of cross-bearing when it comes to this most important part of your life, this spiritual part of your life. Okay, then on to 17. And again, the break here is artificial, as you can tell. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned or divided or apportioned to him and to which God has called him. So there's the idea of the holy vocation, the shapes and forms of this as it relates to marriage, whether one is celibate and then a different set of circumstances, or one of his, or whether one is married, married to another believer, married to an unbeliever, kind of Paul's little catalog or pastoral here concludes and is summarized in this statement that God calls us each um, and apportions to each different lives. Let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Prescription is fine. Rule is fine. And I think there you can, that just, to me, that statement there just underlines the idea that Paul is speaking from apostolic authority. He wouldn't say this is my rule in all the churches if it wasn't authoritative. 18, was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? So now we transition. Here would be the better place for the break. Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. I don't ask, I I actually looked this up once, don't. Um, It was many years ago when I was young and foolish. Uh, There are apparently ways to try to undo circumcision, yeah, please. 
man can only take so much. So, but they're like, otherwise, what does this mean? You know what I mean? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> All right. Just trust me on this. It can be done, apparently. Um, Paul here is saying, don't. So if a man is circumcised, when he's called, that is to say, when he's converted, when he becomes a Christian. If you go, I'm uncircumcised, I'm becoming a Christian, don't go and be circumcised. If you're circumcised, don't go, oh, i got to remove the marks of my circumcision. I don't want to be a Judaizer, right? So, no, you've been called by the Lord as you are. Then 19, for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. There's that... uh, Tiresis, that tyreo, that uh, treasuring, keeping, honoring, obeying, uh, the entolon, the commandments of God. And then he goes on uh, to another topic here in 20, or excuse me, I don't know, 20 is a general statement. It's 21 proper where he goes on. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a slave when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who is called in the Lord as a slave is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he who is free when called is a slave of Christ. So does Paul care if you're a slave or a free or free? Not really. I mean, sure, if you're a slave, if you can be free, go for it. Um, that's, but otherwise, Christ doesn't care. If you're if you're a slave, you're his free man. If you're a free man, you're his slave. It's pretty immaterial. It's, it's about as immaterial whether you're a slave or not as it is whether you're circumcised or not. Okay, 22, for he who was called in the Lord. Oh, I'm sorry, I already did 22. Uh, 23, you were bought with a price. And this is beautiful. You're a slave of Christ because you were bought with a price. You're not your own. Which this is where the language of Christ as our master actually comes from and why the disciples call themselves the slaves of Christ. The apostles call themselves the slaves of Christ because he purchased us with, not with gold or silver, but with his precious blood. So he's our master and we're his slaves. It's a, it's a motif of the gospel. Okay. 24. So, bro, oh no. I, and then of course, after the semicolon of 23, do not become slaves of men, which can be many things, obviously. But yeah, don't. Don't intentionally, willingly become someone else's slave. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. And I think this is wonderful. This this just, again, is the biblical foundation of what we call vocation. And that is to say that whatever your status in life, whatever these details of your life are, they're temporary. They're for this life only. Don't get wound around the axle. Um, recognize that God called you in whatever condition you are, and then remain with God in that in those circumstances. And that means your obedience is ultimately to God. So I, Paul will elsewhere say, "Slaves, obey your masters as to the as the Lord. Uh, wives, obey your husbands as the Lord." and so on and so forth, because it is the Lord we serve in all our vocations. Okay, there's a good place to just pause. See if you have any thoughts or all pretty general. Probably relatively uninteresting compared to where we just were. (laughs)
Yeah, I guess most of this is for people who have converted, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. Adult. yeah, yeah, yeah. I think so. Adult converts are largely in view here. Mm-hmm. Okay, 25. Now concerning, uh, yeah, the word is just virgins, but the context seems to be betrothed. Now, concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I would, I would still put this in the, in the category that I described in, at verse 12. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. What's the present distress? World situation. Yeah, the first century persecution of Christians and in all likelihood the impending destruction of Jerusalem, which Christ has said is coming and indeed does come in 70 AD. So you find a lot of this uh, in, in this part before the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. You find a lot of this, like w- remember Jesus saying, woe to those who are pregnant in those days and this kind of thing. So this like this whole apostolic idea of like, if you can help it, don't get married because we know these sorrows are coming upon this generation. So very contextual there to be sure. And I don't, uh, yeah, I don't think a general rule. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. So you can tell that this, all of this is uh, contextual. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. So he's not binding consciences. And if a betrothed woman, this is also virgin, marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles. And I would spare you that. Now, that seems to be more broadly applicable, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, marriage is a great blessing, but with it uh, comes its its trials, its difficulties. So you'll have worldly troubles. I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. And those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it, for the present form of this world is passing away. Obviously, in terms of historic microcosm, that happens when Jerusalem is destroyed. Uh, and But macrocosmically, that's advice for all of us. Uh, as we go through the vocations, as we go through this life, don't be attached to anything because the Lord can come at any moment. And that's, you know, so you have a wife and in one, in one sense, you know, your wife and your family is everything. That's your vocation. In another sense, it's nothing because when the Lord returns, all that is earthly goes away. Or if you die, all that is earthly goes away. Sometimes the contemplation of death and light of vocation can be really helpful in this vein too, just because you realize, okay, well, if I, you know, whatever my vocations are, whatever my duties are to these people, if I were to be taken right away, um, God will provide for them. I'm not as necessary or as needed as I think I am. 
And I, that can have a humbling effect. It can also have a freeing effect on your soul. Um, it can, but it can also shift your perspective a bit to where as important as these earthly vocations are, as important as the people in your life are, don't make them idols. Any moment you're, you can be pulled away from them. Do you let your God be God? Let your, let your whole ground and your whole universe be God. That's how we're made to be. So ready to go at any moment. That's the best way to be. I like that. Let's say worldly troubles, and I would spare you of it. That is so true. I look at my brothers and sisters and think, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm I'm feeling that this week. It's like, well, my family needs a house. The house has to be repaired, fumigated, painted. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Some worldly troubles there. Okay. On to 32. We've got three minutes. Let's, let's just do it. We're making progress here. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. Is he? <laughs> he should be. <laughs> so the unmarried man, the unmarried woman um, should be directed towards the church. That's just biblical orientation. And then if God grants a spouse, now you're oriented towards spouse and family. Yeah. So, so much of our culture, so why does it say you got to, you should get married in your 30s or whatever? Because what should you be doing up until that point? Serving the church? Definitely not. Serving yourself and engaged in all kinds of nonsense. So that's not the way we want to direct our kids. If our kids are delayed in getting married, it's like, okay, then here's where you're business is to be okay and then yeah and look at this i mean just tangentially how to please the lord isn't he already please isn't he only pleased with us in christ jesus no (laughs) he's pleased to have us as his children in christ jesus and that doesn't change but there are other ways beyond that to please him and that's uh that's in terms of our duties and and lives we live all right 33 But the married man is anxious about worldly things. Oh, is he? How to please his wife? My goodness. Yes. And his interests are divided. Indeed, they are. And the unmarried or betrothed woman, so a virgin probably is, I don't know, is it? Are you falling in the Greek? Is it virgin here? Do you know? Sorry to put you on the spot. You can tell me in a minute if you find it. It is virgin. Yeah. Is anxious about the things of the Lord. So the unmarried or the virgin is anxious about the things of the Lord. How to be holy in body and spirit. Isn't that great? Not just you already are holy in Christ in body and spirit, but how to be holy in body and spirit. I think Luther would get sanctioned by some Lutherans today for speaking this way. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things. How to please her husband. It's true. It's true. Verse 35, I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you. So again, he's not, he wants to be clear here. He's not making some kind of law of like, don't get married because get married, you know, it's going to divide your attention. You're going to have these troubles and anxieties you wouldn't all, you know, you wouldn't otherwise have. That's so he wants to be clear that he's not laying down some kind of law or restraint, but rather that they can be wise in the decision they make. So he says, but rather to promote good order. 
and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Again, if if that's uh, if that's what's granted you, and uh, in context, of course, too, all the more because he says, "Remain as you are, if you can, because uh, the times are are bad and they're going to get worse." That's a good place to break. Oh, excellent! We're out of time anyway, because thirty six really launches into a kind of a difficult tangent before we get into eight, which is great because we're coming up on. Um, Food offered to idols, which is going to start to touch on the Lord's Supper, but even more so, it's going to give us an accurate understanding of adiaphora, which is a theological concept that is every every Lutheran throws around the word adiaphora, and nine out of ten times they have no clue what they're talking about. All right, let's close with the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.